This is the Raising Freethinkers podcast. I'm Dale McGowan, editor and co-author of Raising Freethinkers and Parenting Beyond Belief, books for raising compassionate, curious kids without religion. We are the Mythmakers. I did religious literacy wrong at first with my kids. When they were really young, I was still figuring out the non-religious parenting thing, but I knew I wanted them to know about religion, whether or not they ended up believing any of it, but I didn't know how to do that. At one point, I decided I would read some of the Bible to them. I'm not kidding. I basically said, gather round, children. This is the Bible. This is the Jewish part. It's called the Old Testament. Except the Jews don't call it that. They call it the Tanakh, or the Hebrew Bible. This is the Christian part. Well, the, the whole thing is the Christian Bible, but they took the... Let me start over. And they were like three through nine years old, and they were all going, Oh my God, and falling back forward in their chairs before I could even get to in the beginning. I didn't get very far before I realized that it was the worst possible approach. It's not even fair to the Bible. Religious literacy shouldn't take place in big sit-down lectures. It takes place in thousands of little moments woven into a lifetime. I don't even think of it as religious literacy anymore. Exposing kids only to world religions is it's better than just one religion, I suppose, but it still felt a little imperialistic to my anthropology student roots. I studied folklore in college, so in addition to stories from the big five religions, my kids heard about Yasi Atere, who I mentioned in the Useful Monsters episode, the little blonde boy who kidnaps kids in Paraguay who are not napping when they should be. That's a good one for bedtime. And the shark god of Molokai and Anansi the spider in the cargo cults of the South Pacific. We told all these stories in Paul Bunyan and King Arthur in the same spirit, letting the ideas of religion and myth and legend commingle in their minds, because they should. They're cut from the very same cloth. And part of the trick is to catch opportunities when they happen. One time I heard my son singing and practicing guitar. It was Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. And when he got to the strange line, well, she tied you to her kitchen chair, broke your throne and cut your hair. And... I asked if he knew the reference, and I told him about the myth of Samson, the hero whose power was contained in his long hair. The best story in the Bible, by the way, just in terms of mythic coolness, Judges 13 through 16. It needs a good retelling. Bible language isn't great, but you'll get the idea. If we do it right, we expose our kids not just to religion, which is one type of story, but to the broadest possible assortment of the stories that we tell each other. Bedtime is a great opportunity to do this. You want to read to your kids for as long as they'll let you. Google Lucy Calkins oral language, if you doubt. Oral language is the foundation of all language, including reading and writing. 
It's also a great chance to connect and check in. It's a nice ritual, captive audience, all that. Then at one point around 2006, I think it was, my girls were sharing a room and they became enamored of myths. And every night for months, they would ask for a myth. And I'd have to come up with another myth or legend. And I especially loved the Greek and Roman ones when I was a kid. But in a few weeks, I ran out of the myths that I knew by heart and turned to some of the books. And, and it's kind of actually kind of hard to find the myths told well. Uh, the Mary Pope Osborne series is an exception. Those are really good. But I went through the books that we had as well and then just started Googling like mad. We covered amazing territory during that time. And then one night, without warning, the Bronze Age broke loose in my girl's room. It was one of those breath-holding parenting moments when you can't believe your luck at being there to capture it, right? Now, Delaney's 17 now and looking at colleges, but she was five at this point, and she announced that she had made up a myth of her own. And for some reason, I had the presence of mind, just not a phrase that's typically associated with me, by the way, to grab my laptop and transcribe as she spoke. Now, first, I'm going to read her myth to you. It's only about a minute and a half long. And then I'm going to read it again with annotations to the myths that we had read in the weeks beforehand. The Wall of Parvati There was a girl named Medusa and she knew this wall, a big wall, and she hated it. So one day she sailed off in a boat with her sharpest sword and she went to that wall. When she got there, she took out her sword and destroyed the whole wall. The god Parvati was watching her, the god of destroying, because it was her wall. So when Medusa left the wall, Parvati made the wall grow back up. When Medusa found out that it grew back up, she sailed off in her boat again, and when she got there, she cut the wall down again. Parvati saw this happen, she's an Egyptian, and when Medusa was gone again, she sent two of her Egyptian gods down to that wall, and they made the wall grow again. When Medusa heard about that, she didn't want to come out in her boat again, so she put out one of her fastest snakes and made it slither to the wall. The snake wanted to use its very sharp tail to whip down the wall, but he couldn't because the two gods were still there. So he whipped the gods with his tail, and the poison went straight into them, and they fell asleep, and then the snake whipped his tail against every piece of that wall and slithered back to Medusa. Okay, so there's the myth. Now here's the director's cut with annotations. The Wall of Parvati She knew Parvati from the story Ganapati Circles the World that we had read. It's a Hindu myth. Parvati is the consort of Shiva and the mother of Ganapati, who's also known as Ganesh. Parvati is also a Gryffindor, of course. J.K. Rowling was brilliant about weaving mythological references into her series. There was a girl named Medusa, from Perseus and Medusa, Greek myth, and she knew this wall, a big wall, and she hated it. That's the Iliad, Greek. We had just read the book The Trojan Horse, How the Greeks Won the War by Emily Little, 
and much is made about the hated wall around Troy. It's a great retelling of the myth for grades two through four. So one day she sailed off in a boat. Several of the myths that we had read included sailing quests, the Golden Fleece, the Iliad, the Odyssey. With her sharpest sword, Perseus killed Medusa with the infinitely sharp adamantine sword of Hermes. And she went to that wall. When she got there, she took out her sword and destroyed the whole wall. The god Parvati was watching her, the god of destroying. Shiva's pro-wrestling name is the Destroyer. Because it was her wall. So when Medusa left the wall, Parvati made the wall grow back up. When Medusa found out that it grew back up, she sailed off in her boat again. And when she got there, she cut the wall down again. Parvati saw this happen. She's an Egyptian. No idea what that's about. We hadn't done any Egyptian myths yet. Maybe Prince of Egypt, the Disney movie? I don't know. And when Medusa was gone again, she sent two of her Egyptian gods... But this has been a theme in several of the myths we had read, the sending of surrogates on tasks, including Cupid and Psyche, which is Greek, Proserpina and Pluto, which is Roman, sent them down to the wall, and they made the wall grow again. When Medusa heard about that, she didn't want to come out in her boat again, so she put out one of her fastest snakes. We'd encountered two magical snakes recently, in the Garden of Eden, Judaic, and in the Sioux myth of the three transformed brothers. And Medusa has snakes for hair, of course, so maybe she plucked one out and sent it on a mission. The snake was going to use its very sharp tail to whip down the wall, but he couldn't because the two gods were still there. So he whipped the gods with his tail, and the poison went straight into them, and they fell asleep. A jealous Venus tricked Psyche into inhaling a sleeping draft. Roman. And then the snake whipped his tail against every piece of that wall and slithered back to Medusa. My five-year-old daughter had constructed a syncretic midrash. Midrash is a process by which new interpretations are laid on old legends or scriptures, or new stories are synthesized out of elements of older ones, usually for the purpose of instruction. Now, early Jews are on record freaking out about syncretism across party lines, the golden calf is a perfect example of that kind of thing. But the construction of fictional midrash from within Judaic sources is recognized as a vital part of Jewish teaching. In a very good book, The Jesus Puzzle, Earl Doherty argues that the Gospel of Mark was exactly that kind of midrash. And that Mark, whoever that was, did not mean it to be taken as literal fact any more than Delaney did. Doherty argues that it was likely to have been a teaching fiction. But Laney's work more closely resembled a deeper kind of myth-making, one common in the Mediterranean Bronze Age and beyond. The syncretic merging of elements from different belief systems into something new and useful. There's much to suggest that the later character of Jesus is exactly that kind of syncretic construct. Sharing as he does the heroic attributes and biographical details of such early mythic figures as Mithras, who was born on December 25th, mother of virgin, father of the sky god, twelve disciples, entombed in the rock, rose on the third day, etc. And Krishna, and Osiris, and Tammuz, and countless others. 
if you haven't heard of the Lord Raglan Hero Scale, or the Hero Archetype, definitely check that out. Raglan, R-A-G-L-A-N. It's fascinating. So ancient Mediterranean and Middle Eastern cultures spun new tapestries from the threads of religions all around them. Now, here was a 21st century kindergartner doing the same thing. It makes you think we're onto something fundamentally human. Now, if we had exposed Delaney to just one culture, one religion, she could be forgiven for imagining a no-kidding God on the other end of that one dazzling thread. By instead following a hundred threads, she realizes that there are just lots of people on the other end, just plain folks, like Delaney, each of them spinning something lovely and new from the old threads that they picked up. Follow enough of these threads and you find yourself outside the labyrinth of religious belief entirely, blinking in the sun. The thing that left me most awestruck about all this is that she even thought of myth-making as a thing she could do. Picture a Sunday school kid making up his own Bible story. It's not going to happen. Even though that's precisely how Matthew and Luke were elaborated out of Mark, once the 4th century bishops weighed in and made it gospel, further creative energies have been, shall we say, discouraged. With rare exceptions, we are now receivers of that written tradition, not co-creators. At least that process won't be admitted to. That's why the experience of hearing Delaney spin her tale moved me. She recognizes other human hands in the spinning of the mythic tapestry, so... Why not add her own? The Raising Freethinkers podcast is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.com. Media. Thanks for listening. I'm Dale McGowan. See you next time for Raising Freethinkers.